Hi and welcome to episode 76 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Today I have Dr. Ian Lahart. Um, now, not everybody's going to know Ian, but the minute he starts to speak, you will realise that he's clearly a foreigner. Um, um, and today is going to be a very, very different topic, and um, I'll explain why we're going to get into this in a minute. But Ian, perhaps you could um, just tell the listeners who you are and what you're up to currently. Yeah, should I do it in Irish or should I do it in English? Uh, <laughs> you're giving me an option. I'd love to hear your English accent. No, no, That'd be great. Yeah. Uh, so, my name is Dr. Ian Lahart. Um, I am a senior lecturer in exercise physiology at the University of Wolverhampton. I'm also the course leader of the Sport and Exercise Science program there. Um, I'm an honorary researcher out of Russell's Hall Hospital. So, that's where most of my um, cancer work um, happens. And uh, if nobody has uh, been able to tell from the accent so far, I am Irish, not. Canadian or American or Australian or whatever else I get sometimes, but this is my uh, Irish phone voice, as I as I say. So your Irish phone voice, is, yeah, yes, because yeah. of course we all know that. For those of you that are in full time academia, you need to have uh, you need you need to have other jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, when when I'm not, you know, uh, on the Skype or anything, I talk a little bit like uh, Conor McGregor. Turns into a little bit of a Dublin accent, you know. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> brilliant. Well, I, <laughs> but I, I'm from till there. If anybody, uh, if any Irish listeners are. Well, we've had a few Irish uh, on this um, podcast, of course. Uh, uh, Dr. Kirsty Elliot Sells been on, of course. Yeah, um, and I know there've been others, uh, but um, uh, the 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 reason why I wanted to get you on this podcast, Ian, was for several reasons. We've met, of course. You've done some lectures for us on the ISSN diploma program and um, prior to that I had read some of your uh, work and we've had one of your colleagues from Wolverhampton, um, Professor Andy Lane has been on talking about something totally different on psychology. So one way or the other I'd come across some of your work but um, I think uh, what I wanted to talk about today was something that touches upon a number of things that I find of of special interest and and that they are I guess from two areas one of which is in this podcast I have mentioned quite a few times I, I don't really like the idea of sports nutrition as a title for a profession and I'm interested in exercise physiology in a wider scale but sports nutrition as you know we talked offline about this just a minute ago is sort of a at least was a focus at the beginning of this podcast but in the UK in particular we we've sort of moved away from calling ourselves sports nutritionists to performance nutritionists. And I like that because our role as scientists, practitioners, researchers, however which way we want to contribute um, to this, this profession as performance nutritionists is with the understanding that, that nutrition and exercise and all the other things we're going to talk about today um, isn't just about making athletes greater, getting people to, to win medals. Human, you know, athletes are human beings, and human beings also suffer from problems and illnesses. And these are areas which our work can potentially play a role. And um, you know, there are a number of, of things that I think we could focus on. But one of which will be your work on on cancer, and we'll get into that in a minute. 
many of us have been touched by cancer. I myself, my uh, mother passed away three years ago from cancer. Um, not the type of cancer we're going to discuss today, but I think I think everyone, one way or the other, knows someone that's that's dealt with this. And, and it doesn't even have to be about cancer. It could be heart disease. Could be any kind of long term or even short term illness. Um, you know, the thing that happens in that scenario is people tend to shy away from exercise and, you know, they develop bad habits that affects their diet and so on. And I, you know, in reading the copious amounts of papers, Ian, that you gave me to read, <laughs> which <laughs> I, I, want, I want a postgraduate degree just for reading that stuff, it really <laughs> hit me just how much of a role things like nutrition and exercise can play. And we, ne we, we, we constantly go on about nutrition and exercise for performance-only things. And I think that's selling ourselves short. So that's enough for me rambling on. You know, I've mentioned cancer, which is the other C word. I prefer context. It's a much safer <laughs> C word. But why did you get into this area of research? Yeah, I was given the opportunity to... Um to run a randomized control trial looking at the role of physical activity in, in breast cancer patients post-treatment. Um, one of my colleagues at Wolverhampton University is um, Dr. Um, Matthew Wilson, who's now in uh, Doha. And he um, was my supervisor on my MSc that I was doing at Wolves while I was um, working in a, in a university college in, in Birmingham. And he was approached by um, a guy I work with quite closely, um, Dr. George Metsios, who was looking for somebody to run this, uh, this study. So uh, Matt recommended me to George, and then I, you know, I came on board and ran the, the randomized control trial for them. So it was quite fortuitous, um, but I was given the opportunity to work in this, with this population, and uh, yeah, I took it. Yeah, I, and I think... I don't know how you feel about this because you've got a very interesting background. You know, usually exercise physiologists aren't people that are working in cancer research. Um, but, you know, when you, not that I guess everyone reads around this stuff, I did because of what my mother went through. And, you know, you, you, you invest time into trying to understand what the hell's going on and can I even do anything about it, you know, which sadly I, I was unable to. But, you know, the, the link between the fields of exercise physiology and disease like mm. cancer, for example, is that is that an, a, a very established field or are we still quite young in this area? Yeah, there's a couple of key um, institutes around the, the world. So especially in Canada, there's uh, Kerry Cornea and Christine um, Friedenreich really kind of kicked off a lot of the research in this area, looking at exercise and breast cancer populations. Um, Freedom reach from much more of a, I suppose, an observational population uh, type research, and Kerry Cornea much more in the kind of interventions, exercise interventions, and they set up um, a kind of a exercise uh, rehabilitation for center over in um, in Canada for that, uh, and then really the first one in the UK was a group of really excellent researchers, um, John Saxton and uh, Nanette Mutri with Amanda Daly and Helen Crank, they started really investigating the role of exercise, supervised exercise with breast cancer patients um, in the UK. So 
there is a bit of a tradition in terms of exercise. Uh, well, Nanette Mutri is more exercise psychology, but there is a tradition in, in terms of those involved in exercise physiology to move into clinical settings. So looking at uh, the role of exercise with chronic disease, and that's that's happening more and more. Uh, probably partially because you know of people are interested in looking at that area but also that's where a lot of the funding is uh, you know the funding is in, in in more the clinical settings rather than the sports performance you know that's obviously reflects the importance of exercise physiology within clinical settings and the the the, the importance of the outcomes that we're looking at so mortality and morbidity and uh, quality of life and cardiovascular fitness and so on just everyday function Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we've touched upon related topics, I guess. With um, Lee Breen was on, and we talked about aging. Um, there was a link, obviously, there to um, age-related sarcopenia, that sort of thing. Um, uh, we've talked a bit, I think, um, with Kevin Tipton as well when we got into the various podcasts on protein and um, how that can influence. Um, well, again, sarcopenia. It's very interesting. And uh, with Craig Sale, of course, we talked about bone health. These are all things that I guess people, they leave until the last minute, don't they? And by last minute, unfortunately, that can be an irreversible <laughs> scenario. Um, I, guess, I guess before we get into the more specific topics that I wanted to cover with you, this, this link between exercise, I'm not going to... I probably won't talk as much about diet, although we'll see how that goes. But this this link between exercise and health, generally longevity, and uh, you know, because we have to be mindful. Of course, there's an awful lot of correlations that go on with this stuff. Um, I personally feel, which isn't how I've always felt, but as I've become more educated and I understand research and how it comes um, to be better, is we know a lot more about how say nutrition for example um, can influence things like body composition and performance and I'm less convinced that we know how it affects health in the usual sense of the term um, but exercise that's a slightly different scenario I think and do you recall <clears throat> there was that um, going, it went around a lot on social media there's a picture of a pill and on it it had exercise <coughs> and the idea is that exercise really is a really fantastic therapeutic modality. I mean, how do you feel about that specifically? Yeah, um, it's a it's a bit of a... Uh, I suppose I haven't yet really formed um, a, a solid opinion. And I've got my views in terms of... I'm not a massive fan of the use of the term miracle cure for, for exercise. I think it... Pro really provides the wrong message physically but having said that talking to doctors and everything else to, as a way to market something that they can see is beneficial they quite like it and in terms of uh, I spoke to one doctor before who said you know I really like um, you know the message of physical activity because it's a positive one and it's much more positive than the taking more drugs and medications associated with side effects and everything else so I think there is the question of the evidence and the question of how we promote it. Mm. So in terms of the the evidence, yes, there are correlations. So what you're, what you're 
I assume you're talking about is the is some of those observational studies that show an association between physical activity and longevity, or you know, reduced premature mortality, or the reduced occurrence of a of a disease. And yes, they are associations, but there are certain things that we can look at that um, that provide us with a few more clues about what's going on. So, for example, we look at the consistency of the evidence. So. Is most of these observational studies finding the same thing? Is there a consistent reduction in, let's say, the, the risk of, of premature mortality? Are these studies controlling for the confounders that you'd expect? So those things that are also associated with um, mortality and disease occurrence, are they controlling for those factors? So for exercise, are they controlling for the, the number of uh, people that smoked, for example? Um, just simple things like that, but also in terms of what is the magnitude of the effect? Is it, is it quite a large effect? And, um, you know, we can start to kind of piece together and then an important um, part is also a dose response. So if we give somebody increasing levels of exercise, so more exercise, does it have more benefits? So do we see an increased reduction in the risk of early mortality if we give somebody more exercise or more physical activity in, in general. So those observational studies, yes, they show associations, but there are things that we can look in them that give us a little bit more information around uh, the strength of that association. And I, I, I kind of don't want to say the word causation because they're not evidence of causation, but they, they give some clues towards that, you know, and then, you know, because we have very few randomized control trials looking at exercise and those end outcomes for mortality and morbidity. So for example, we don't have a randomized control trial showing that exercise or increased levels of physical activity, if you give somebody an intervention that increases their physical activity, we don't have a randomized control trial that shows that that reduces the risk of breast cancer a less occurrences of breast cancer or their, their, their mortality rates. So we only really have the, uh, the, the um, observational studies, but as uh, somebody in public health said to me before, the evidence is strong enough to start making, uh, to start promoting it as a good thing for people to do. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's a difficult one because I feel sometimes I feel like people start groaning every time I mention the word context, but it is an important part of this podcast is to make people think, you know, when you're listening to people like us having this conversation and reading the work from people like yourself, you've always got to bear in mind the context in which, you know, all this is being done. But also there are important considerations like individual preferences yeah. and, um, Sometimes something may have been shown to benefit a certain thing, but for someone they may hate doing that, and the hating it or the inconvenience or the stress involved in that might be worse than the benefits. So, um, I, you know, there's a lot to this stuff. And when we're talking about illness, we're talking about something that it's not just an inconvenience to someone. You know, it, it, particularly when it's a really nasty situation that has a potentially really horrible outcome like cancer you're talking about someone who's also shit scared um you know i know that's not a scientific term but it's something that 
I think <laughs> I think you read it in my paper. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, <laughs> the SS phenomenon. No, but you know, it is, it is something, and you see that, and we'll talk about breast cancer in a minute, where you, you know, people are thinking very seriously about chopping parts of their body off, yeah. um, with a view to preventing something from becoming something that might be a life-threatening scenario, even if even if all they have is family history. Um, it's amazing what fear will do. Um, but it's also how we interpret risk. Yes. You know, and, and how much risk we're willing to have in our lives for, 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 for a particular thing. So, you know, that's, that's an important factor. You know, when you consider genetic testing to see whether somebody has a particular mutated gene that increases the risk of cancer, well, you've got to consider really you know, what is the risk of developing a cancer if you have that mutated gene, for example? And are you willing to, to you know, live with that, with that risk? Yeah, I, I mean, see, I mean, where I'm thinking, and I don't want to go too far off topic because there's very specific things I want to talk about, but, and we've talked about this in, a, in other podcasts, is where science is, is misused to sell, say, supplements. And that's pretty bad. But that pales compared to how science can be misused, you know, for therapeutical strategies or alternative, you know, medical treatments for things. People just don't know what the evidence is saying and how to interpret it. And I guess the wrong people are the ones that are abusing it. And, um, you know, the rest of us have got to sit here and look at this stuff and try and make heads or tail of it, which is one reason why I want to try and get to the meat of it in things like this podcast um anyway look there's some things i want to get back to so you know we've mentioned cancer um there's various kinds of cancer uh we'll focus maybe more on breast cancer today but could you just give us some background as to what cancer actually is yeah so i suppose to answer that you got to consider what happens under normal conditions and under normal conditions, the growth and the number of new cells is really tightly controlled by the body. So you kind of have a, a homeostasis in the number of cells. But with cancer, old and damaged cells survive and new cells are created when they're not needed. So this is a result. So cancer is caused by a mutation. Now, a mutation is an abnormal change. This is in the DNA of a gene and a gene is a, is a are pieces of DNA to tell the cell what to do, when to grow and when to divide. So you know that where these mutations occur and what genes that become mutated is really really important. So cancer arises from mutations in one or more genes that are involved in um, the normal cell growth that we see, normal cell growth and division. Some of the genes that control this normal cell growth and division and then some that are involved in DNA repair and those that are involved in cell death. And this, this cell death is given a name, it's, it's, a, it's a, called apoptosis, and this is a programmed cell death. It's a, once a cell becomes damaged, if it can't be repaired, the cell then self-destructs, basically. So, um, so there's mutations in those type of genes, but there, there's a great paper, and I sent this to you, Lauren, uh, the Han 
Conrahan and Weinberg, who describe, you know, there are over 200 different types of cancer, but they all share common traits or hallmarks. So in this paper by Hanrahan and Weinberg, they outline the common traits or hallmarks of cancer. And without going into too much detail in each one of them, because that could take the whole podcast in, its, in itself, but they're... The first one is probably the most fundamental one, and that's where there's an uncontrolled proliferation of cells. And what proliferation means is there's an increase in the, in the number of cells through cell division and growth. So you've got an uncontrolled division of, of cells there. And once the cells have these, this mutation, it's important to keep in mind that this is a proliferation of mutated cells that is increased. So if you think about it as... Um, you know, it's kind of like an accelerator pedal in your in your car. When you want to increase proliferation, push down on the pedal. If you want to decrease it, ease up on the pedal. But with cancer, the accelerator pedal is stuck on the down position. And it's mutations in genes that are called um, they're given they're called um, proto oncogenes. So an oncogene is a cancer gene. So proto oncogene are fine. They're involved in normal cell division and growth. But when they have a mutation, they turn bad, and we call this an oncogene. So these are mutations in oncogenes that result in an increased cell division and increased growth in, in, in cells. And then what they do is they, they manage to evade anything that stops them from growing and dividing. So these are, uh, there's uh, genes called tumor suppressor genes. And when we develop mutations in those, we basically deactivate any mechanism that controls the cell division. So you, again, you just have this perpetuated problem of rapidly dividing and growing cells there. And then they, they, they take on this, they acquire this ability to avoid cell death. So as I said before, in normal conditions, a damaged cell will just self-destruct. They overcome, these mutated cells overcome this, so they literally gain immortality. They don't die and they replicate, you know, continuously. And then they do, when they develop into a, into, you know, they grow together, develop into a tumor. And we, we hear this word tumor, but, you know, it's important that some tumors are benign. These are not cancerous. They, they just grow and expand and push the other tissue aside. A malignant tumor, that's a cancerous one, and that invades into the surrounding tissue, and it basically destroys the evading tissue. So there's doing invasive tumor, cancerous tumor that we're, that we're more concerned with. A tumor needs nutrients, just like any other cell. And what they manage to do is they recruit blood vessels and they create blood vessels around the tumor to give it a blood supply. So it has a supply of oxygen, nutrients, and it can get rid of carbon dioxide and it can get rid of metabolic waste products. So it literally becomes self-sufficient. So rapidly dividing, rapidly proliferating, evading anything stopping it from growing, avoiding death, and then having its own nutrient supply in there. So those are the kind of key ones. There are other ones that really um, that involve the, the last stage, which is really a terrifying kind of uh, aspect of, of cancer where it can spread. So this is where the tumors acquire the ability to spread throughout the body. And usually there's, there's a glue that holds cells together called e-cadherin. And the cancer cells lose this e-cadherin and then they can break off and they get into your bloodstream, they get into your um, lymphatic system, and they travel to other parts of the body. So kind of an example from there is when Lance Armstrong originally got testicular cancer, 
the cancer had spread to his lungs and to his brain. So he had tumors in lungs and, and in the brain. So that's, that's a later stage. It's called metastatic um, cancer. There are other hallmarks as well, but we don't need to go into those in as much detail. They're kind of around inflammation uh, specifically and evading destruction from our immune system. Yeah, it's interesting you mention Lance Armstrong. And that's sort of a... That is an interesting one. I guess, you know, for all the the stuff that went down with him taking, um, you know, or cheating the system, so to speak, you know, I, I, I mean, he he won a more important battle, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, and I think what's interesting about that is if, if we can just get away from all the arguing of did he or didn't he yeah. take the drugs, obviously, well, I know did. that he did, <laughs> you know, as it relates to Tour de France and all that. Yeah. What I find interesting about that is the fact that he had cancer mm -hmm. uh, and he exercised a lot. Yeah. And he, he got through it, which is something I want to focus on today. Um, not Lance yeah. Armstrong, obviously, but is, is how, you know, how, how can things like exercise, um, have some sort of positive modifying role in this. Yeah, um, so on yeah. that, Lauren, mm. just just because you mentioned um, that he exercised a lot and he mm. got cancer, and some people think, you know, that well, how can somebody who's fit and healthy get cancer? Is is, is when it, it's somebody's point, unhealthy, yeah. surely? Mm. And it's important that people, you know, recognize that there are three really ways that we can acquire this mutation. And one is that it's it's hereditable, or that we can just inherit it from our parents, this mutation. And the idea is that cancer is caused by one, by more than one mutation. So if you're born with one mutation already, then you're more likely to develop another mutation. So that's got nothing really to do with, with exercise so, so, uh, so much. And then a second way is that when cells divide, they just can accrue errors. So during your lifetime, you just have errors in cell division. And they can result in cancer as well. So nothing to do with environmental or external factors. But those are relatively small numbers. So the figures are, you know, we're not too sure, but they could be between 10 and, you know, 30, 40% of cancers are, are, are caused by those hereditable and the um, just lifetime errors in, in cell division. The majority is through exposure to environmental factors. So this could be, you know, sunlight, for example, radiation, smoking, and then the kind of lifestyle factors that we're interested in is like physical inactivity and whether that plays a role. So it's just, I suppose, important to keep in mind how, you know, we acquire these mutations. Yeah, dr drinking is my favorite uh, lifestyle yeah. activity, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's mentioned alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think this is fascinating because as I've mentioned before, I think people don't often connect athletes and performance and, and illness and actually they can go together and Lance Armstrong's a particularly famous example, but there have been many athletes who have, have either gotten over an illness such as cancer or, or perform with an illness such as diabetes 
Um, there are ma- many such people who have gone on to win Olympic medals, not just any old medal, but gold medals as well. It doesn't have to be a debilitating process. And I know people who who have been in this situation, and in, in an odd way, and I think people will understand hopefully what I mean by this, but it's kind of been the best thing that ever happened to them because it was the thing that changed their attitude to their lifestyle. And, you know, they they changed their exercise and diet and and so on and and as a result of that you know had a positive outcome yeah Yeah. so let's get back to um cancer you you've given us an overview of of what cancer is i know that um one area that you're particularly knowledgeable on is breast cancer um i mean it would be worth just giving us a a bit of an overview of of breast cancer because i know it's such a common problem so, breast cancer is um, occurs. You know, there's still the mutations that occur, but it's the mutations that are, occur here and the and where the malignant tumors develop. They begin. Uh, breast cancer is is a carcinoma. So, we usually separate cancers in, in terms of the the car- where the tumor actually occurs. So, in terms of um, lymphoma. Is within the within the immune system cells and the blood, uh, leukemia where the where the blood cells are being produced, um, in bone marrow for example, um, for but breast cancer is a carcinoma and this basically means that it starts in the endothelial cells and these are the cells that line you know the you know the, the organs for example within the body but it, within the the breast they line the milk producing glands in the breast that are called the lobules. And they line the ducts, which basically transport milk from the lobules to the nipple. So um, you have basically these tumors, malignant tumors, that start within there, but then spread to the surrounding tissue of the breast and start to destroy the kind of um, the tissue around there. So it's pretty much, you know, that's where they start, and that's and and, and that's where you find the, the tumors and where they spread out from. Yeah. And are we are we talking only women here? No, no, but the the number of men that uh, have breast cancer is is very, very low. Um, So you're talking about, if I can remember, uh, you know, between 1 and 4% of all breast cancer patients uh, are male breast cancer patients, and it's usually associated with um, overweight and obesity in in there. But um, I suppose... Uh, in terms of, uh, there are there still can be um, cancers of the of, or that occur in the breast, but in the breast tissue more, and these are sarcomas more than our our carcinomas. Our sarcomas occur in connective tissue in muscle and fat and so on, so they're slightly different. Sure, and I you know I, I want to make it clear to the listeners that the point of this discussion is not so that that we or some of you can start trying to you know come up with protocols to help cure cancer that's not the point awareness is you know is important and as i mentioned this affects many people but but since we're involved in things that influence lifestyle factors that ultimately could influence one's predisposition to cancer um you know, I, I I think that there are some areas here that are worth us discussing. So, 
you know, um, the, the, the role of a person's general level of fitness, um, obesity, I've read in a lot of the papers that you had me read, constantly goes on about, you know, obesity. Uh, in fact, not you don't have to be obese, just being overweight yeah. um, can be a major, major um, risk factor for this. From the perspective of we're not oncologists, we're not we're not trying to treat cancer, but we you know potentially we want to reduce the potential risk for these sorts of things in our approaches to exercise and nutrition programs. What are the what are those 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 things that we can influence through diet and exercise that um, would have a potential benefit to this? Yeah, so there are a number for if you. Think about breast cancer in particular, there are a number of risk factors and obviously some are modifiable, so exercise and diet and others aren't. So most of the breast cancer cases are actually in older women, so postmenopausal. Um, and as you said, overweight and obesity is associated with an increased risk in postmenopausal women. Um, perhaps later on we'll, we'll talk a little bit about around the mechanisms for how, why we think exercise might be beneficial for, for cancer and I can talk about um, the role of, of body fatness there. But other factors that consider in terms of exposure to sex hormones such as estrogen and testosterone are, are important and physical activity might play a role there. And then certain reproductive factors such as breastfeeding might reduce the risk of, of breast cancer. Um, if we, uh, you know, early menarche might increase it, increase the risk. So it's stuff related, especially for breast cancer, stuff related to the exposure to estrogen that will play a role. For, for, you know, diet in particular, it's really difficult to make kind of recommendations on diet for, for cancers because the, the evidence isn't all that strong, all that great there. But I, I did see things around dietary patterns and it's not really a surprise that the Mediterranean diet comes out pretty well in terms of association with um with with cancer risk there. But it's um it's quite difficult for uh to give specific recommendations about nutrients. Yeah. Actually, you reminded me of something I wanted to ask that I otherwise would have forgotten, so I need to say it now. Um, there's a trend in the health and fitness industry to get into hormone optimization, I shall call it. Um, and I, I don't intend to go into this in any great detail, but for those that are listening that do get into this stuff, um, it, I think there's um, a value in discussing the relationship that hormones can have with cancer um, and I'm not just talking about you know maximizing testosterone or that sort of thing is there are there's a belief that um, hormones play a role in um, not just the onset of um, obesity but also where we store body fat and that sort of thing so of course naturally there's an interest in trying to manipulate those things through lifestyle factors supplements potentially alternative therapies, whatever, um, in a view to influence where we're storing body fat or, or how do we increase anabolic hormones and all that stuff. But of course, yeah. if, you know, we might be dealing with, we might be manipulating some other problems at the same time. Could you just quickly discuss that? Yeah, I, where this comes in to place, Lauren, is really the... Um, 
the hypothesis around why we think physical activity might be beneficial for uh, for breast cancer because it this is where the kind of talking about the sex hormones and exposure to those comes comes in so if I briefly kind of give you a, a, a description of that or an, or an outline so in terms of the, the mechanisms when we look at any when we look at whether exercise might in influence the risk or the progression or the recurrence of cancer, we need to really think about, well, what causes the DNA damage in the first place? What causes the initiation of the of cancer? And then what causes the promotion and progression of, of cancer? So in a very general sense, then, you might have things around that exercise might improve the metabolism of certain chemical carcinogens, for example. So that would expose, that would reduce your, your risk of DNA damage and oxidative stress that you that I think you've touched in a few of the um, yeah. podcasts that that would increase your risk of of DNA damage and exercise might reduce oxidative stress, but then you've got this around um, that exposure. Now I mean, chronic exposure to high concentrations of certain hormones may promote DNA damage in the first place, but also the initiation, the promotion, and progression of, of cancer. And it's here where we think it's the, that the that physical activity plays a role in reducing the risk of breast cancer, but also the risk of recurrence and dying from breast cancer later on. So it's the same um, the same model really used. So with this one, the key thing is around exposure and lifetime ex exposure to estrogens. So we think that. And because estrogen can inhibit apoptosis, so it prevents that cell death, and it can stimulate the proliferation of mammary cells. So the cells within the breast, it increases proliferation of them and it, and it avoids cell death in there. So it has very powerful effects in the, on the breast cells. So in, in premenopausal women, it's different between premenopausal and postmenopausal, but in premenopausal women, we think that physical activity by delaying, and I mean, it's probably more going to be chronic and higher intensity exercise in this and higher loads of exercise, that that might delay menarche. So you start menstruating far later or a few years later, so you've less lifetime exposure to estrogen. Plus, you also disrupt um, menstruation uh, throughout life, so you have a lower overall exposure to estrogen. Now, that's the, the evidence there is, is suggestive rather than conclusive there, and it's maybe more to do with energy deficits in that case. Hmm. So where you have chronic energy deficits, you have the disruption in menstrual cycle. So, but for postmenopausal women, it's a bit more solid for this because physical activity through influencing body fat directly or influencing, um, or influencing other factors that I'll talk about in a second, that can influence the risk of, of breast cancer. So post-menopause, uh, basically the, the ovaries produce far less or completely cease estrogen production. So you don't you have a, a, a low amount of estrogen within the within the body for postmenopausal women. However, the body finds a way to produce estrogen and it produces it in, in the adipose tissue. So in the fat cells has an enzyme called aromatase. And aromatase can convert androgens such as testosterone and androstenedone into estrogens. 
So the more fat cells you have, the greater capacity of converting androgens into estrogen. And therefore, you've got an increased exposure to estrogen. So if through physical activity, and I know we've touched on this plenty in the podcast, that if physical activity can reduce body fat, now it's probably going to be small, but and then probably need a diet intervention there as well. But if we can reduce um, body fat through exercise, then we can reduce estrogens, uh, the estrogen production through the conversion of androgens to estrogen. We can also increase something that's really beneficial called sex hormone binding globulin. And that basically binds to estrogen, reducing its availability, so it can't have any action on the cells. It's the same it binds to testosterone and, and, and these androgens, which the androgens have a similar effect. We know that they're, they're anabolic, they're responsive, they can stimulate the division of cells. So they can also increase the risk directly. So physical activity can reduce fat mass and therefore can possibly reduce your exposure to estrogens and androgens, which have a proliferative effect on, on mammary cells. There are also, insulin is another one that you've touched in your, in your, uh, your podcast as well. And insulin, if we can lower body fat, then we can lower the amount of concentrations of insulin in the body. And insulin has an anti-apoptotic effect in mammary cells, so it prevents cell death. And it also stimulates what we call mitosis, so the, the division of cells is increased. So that again, it's another powerful effect on, on breast cells. So if we can reduce insulin levels, either indirectly through body fat or directly through physical activity, because we know physical activity can reduce insulin levels then we might have decreased risk. And then there's a whole other area around inflammation, which I won't go into too much, but if uh, inflammation can promote the progression of a tumor, and if physical activity, again, either directly or indirectly through, through either body fat or just directly through physical activity, can reduce inflammation. So these are some things that you might have heard in the podcast before about tuner necrosis factor alpha and interleukin-6 and C-reactive protein. Mm. Reduce those and you may have a mechanism that can reduce the risk of breast cancer and also the progression of breast cancer. So it's quite a complicated kind of uh, uh, model or complex model, but it's kind of interrelated, interrelated um, um, proteins involved and, and mechanisms involved there. Yeah, but I mean, you know, if you if you consider that the basic thing there is, you need to be lean. Um, Postmenopausal, you need yeah, to be. Yeah, you need to be lean, and and last time I looked out the window because I'm stuck indoors all the time. There's not too many lean people out there, and every yeah. year that goes by, the problem just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. You know, even children now are just incredibly overweight. So. I yeah. guess I guess what we're looking at as people who are um, um, well, not we because we're not necessarily in the same field, but people who work in the front line, people who um, personal trainers, pe that sort of thing, you know, helping to keep people lean is an incredibly important thing we're doing, isn't it? Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. Um, in terms of that. Um, because it's such a big risk factor, um, overweight and obesity, postmenopausal for 
for breast cancer the the need for weight loss intervention there is 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 very big and we've mm. got to improve prognosis so improve breast cancer outcome with people who lose weight after that and it's, in, it's interesting because you mentioned it earlier on is that when people get cancer they can change their lifestyle and mm. some and it, it's a it's a curious thing because when somebody has a diagnosis of cancer and all of the kind of problems that are, that are surrounded people want to do good around us so they basically say you have a rest over there and let me do this for you and they do all of the work and they basically the the cancer patient becomes inactive you know, because it's this kindness that the people do I'll, I'll do everything for you and you have weight gain you know maybe associated with this inactivity also some side effects to some of the treatment that they're on as one of the side effects is 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 weight gain as well so definitely they're in in the, the need for interventions there and weight loss interventions are quite big for, for postmenopausal women who are overweight and obese um, at um, a diagnosis. Well, you're, I mean, you're right. You know, I think for a long time now, we've all been led to believe that anything, anything remotely that constitutes illness, whether it's a cold or whatever, yeah. you know, um, you better rest up. Yeah. And therein lies so many problems. I, I, I you know, I, there's all sorts of avenues we could go down in this discussion mm. and we just don't have time. But I think that's why it's so great that so much research is being done in this area. And, you know, researchers like yourself are helping to further what we know about these things. And hopefully that will come through, you know, into the front line with the actual practitioners that are dealing with this stuff. And um, maybe even the Daily Mail will start writing about this. But... <laughs> Um, mechanistically, yeah. why is physical activity um, so important in influencing um, risk of death uh, from breast cancer? So, everything that I said around the mechanisms for a reduction in risk of breast cancer, mm. we think applies to also mortality from breast cancer, so breast cancer related mortality. So it's all of those same factors. So we think, because if you think about it in terms of the things that resulted in the damage of the DNA in the breast cells, the things that initiated cancer and the things that progressed, caused the promotion and progression of that breast cancer, once you take it out, the tumor out and you go through the treatment, those are the, still the same things that can um, you know, cause a recurrence of the cancer, or if it hasn't been found or detected, then it can cause, a, or it hasn't been all taken out, then it could cause a progression of the cancer as well. So it's all of those same things. The, you know, there, it's the exposure to estrogen, you know, those sex hormones and the kind of increase of sex hormone binding globulin in there, the inflammatory markers, some of the dipokines as well, and then the insulin exposure there. And the, the, one of the other things that insulin does is it reduces the amount of sex hormone binding globulin in the body as well. So you basically, if you have higher levels of insulin, you've got higher levels of sex hormone binding globulin, and then you have increased exposure to those sex hormones. So the insulin is a quite an important, um, potentially important um, hormone in, in all of this as well. It's interesting, isn't it, when 
you consider some of the really big diseases out there and yet when you start looking into this you start coming across the usual suspects don't you these things just keep coming up and one way or the other these things are highly influenced by lifestyle yeah um and it just makes you realize just how important diet and exercise really is um so you know I, i don't think we need to go down the path of prevention and all that but inevitably um someone will be in this situation and they'll be under treatment yeah what do you feel and obviously this would be a very case by case situation and you know the medical people need to be involved in these decisions but just from a general perspective what sort of role should or shouldn't exercise play when they're actually under treatment and there's various kinds of treatment which you could mention as well yeah so I think the the general recommendation would be to try stay active during the treatment period you know it's it's a very difficult um, stage of a cancer patient's treatment in terms of intervention when they're receiving the cycles of, of chemotherapy and radiotherapy and so on. So what we tend to find in that in the literature is that there are much smaller effects of of exercise interventions there. But I think what you have to consider as well is, is there that it some of it is actually it's good that it maintains it. So if you think about cardiorespiratory fitness, you know, when I test uh, Cancer, breast cancer patients post-treatment, we have, you know, VO2 max scores of about, you know, sometimes 23, 24, 25. The highest that I had in, you know, 40, 50 patients that I tested was was 32, was the highest VO2 max. So, you know, this is immediately post-treatment. So even if we can get them, maintain their activity levels, we can we can maintain, hopefully, their, their cardiorespiratory fitness, or at least reduce the loss in cardiorespiratory fitness and then you know it's not going to be and we said earlier on it's not going to be a magic bullet that you're not you're going to exercise and you're not going to experience any of the side effects of treatment you know that's just not going to be the case but it may reduce the fatigue maybe you know in, in some you might feel a little bit less tired during the treatment it may improve your your function, so in terms of we said cardiovascular fitness, but also your upper body strength and your lower body strength might be improved, and um, you may not see an increase in body weight either. So you might not increase your body fat. In fact, you might slightly decrease it, but you know, fairly negligible amount, but still important when you consider the importance of weight gain in that one. And then in terms of those who report, who do more exercise during treatment, they report generally a, a better quality of life, but much more in terms of a quality, functional quality of life and you know, lower kind of anxiety scores and, 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 and so on there. But just as a kind of, um, I suppose, my own kind of observation in, in there in the literature, it's a very individual thing. And some of this might be uh, related to, you know, the social side of it as well. So how much social support um, a cancer patient has during treatment is, I think, is an important point there, just from my own 
yeah. my own observations. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I you know, as I said, I you know, I've I've had my own personal experience of this, and I don't mind saying it was a horrible time of my life. And I think the worst thing for me was seeing my mother deteriorate. Yeah. Um, now we knew she was going to die. I won't go into all the details, but it was a, a long battle. But ultimately, we knew she was going to die, and it was that quality of life issue that you mentioned. Yeah. And indeed, some physical activity um, kept her functional. Yeah. Um, and I think that that was probably the most important thing because, as we've mentioned, people get sick, they get the diagnosis, they stop. And then, boy, do they deteriorate. Yeah. And and that quality of life is what's so important for the individual. But also for those of us, just to be, this isn't a counselling session, but, uh, you know, one thing is is that when these people do go, they leave us behind. Yeah. And um, what we remember of, of our loved ones, etc., you know, is... Is, is highly influenced by whether they were functional or not and what their quality of life is. And I think that that is important, um, yeah. however which way we look at this. Is to, I've mentioned this in many podcasts. We've got this horrible habit of over-sciencing things sometimes without considering the humanistic part of this. Now, I know athletes can be really focused, you know, um, yeah. but not everyone engages in physical activity because they're athletes. There are other yeah. reasons for it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I have my own kind of um, personal experiences there. I had um, an aunt who who died from cancer as well, but you know, and it was a long, a long battle. But you know, she 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 travelled the world, you know, in in that period of time, really tried to stay, you know, active and tried to kind of you know just do the things that she that she enjoyed in 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 life as well. So it's kind of important that physical activity helps you maintain your function or improves your function. It just allows you to do more and get more out of life, mm. you know, during, during that period. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is interesting how people approach illness. Mm. Um, and I've certainly seen this with athletes a lot. You know, they, they just stop doing stuff. And, and I guess the, the most interesting observation for me is just how quickly it affects... Um, you know body composition how quickly one can lose muscle and all those sorts of things so what we're learning in this realm helps us understand how to deal with other areas which is why I always use the analogy of the toolbox you know we've got different tools we just need to understand you know how these affect us and you know things like quality of life and functionality affects our habits and behaviors and yeah. you know face it when you feel crap depressed or whatever then that changes your other habits i.e. your eating habits and that in turn then affects your health and it just becomes a snowball effect but it's sometimes important to consider you know in this kind of in this kind of research it's really important to consider what are the outcomes that are important to the patients because they may not be the same outcomes that are important to the researchers mm. you know so this stuff around you know sometimes criticized around self-report data and so on but if these are patient-reported outcomes, then they, they carry real value to the individual uh, patients in there. So it's, it's, it's very easy to knock the self-report data, 
But it's just sometimes important to keep in mind that some of these uh, outcomes are very important to the patient and just to just to keep that, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd agree. I, you know, I think you just need to look at what those tools and devices are and what they tell us or don't tell us, you know, like self-reported diets that mm -hmm. we then put into computer dietary analysis programs is probably, you know, a bit you know, yeah. entering into fancy land. Um, yeah, I, I mean more in terms of kind of self-report measures no, of yeah. anxiety and quality yeah. of life, depression, so on, rather yeah. than the kind of trying to remember what you ate or how sure. much activity you did. I know there's there are problems in the sensitivity and the accuracy of those ones, absolutely. Yeah, well, I, and that's why, you know, sometimes re academics, researchers, whatever, will critique the more basic you know, studies that are done in the trenches um, mm -hmm. with people in scenarios where you can't control as much. But then that is that is what's going on. That's the world they live in. And yeah. that's what we're trying to influence. We're, we're, we're not working with people who live in a lab. They live in a, in a real world scenario. Yeah. Um, and that, that's why I like exploring all these different topics, because it helps us understand the humans that we work with. And like I said, we're not you know, we're not athletes or our, our athlete clients aren't just athletes, they're humans and there's a lot that affects them. Yeah. So, um, I th that's pretty much brings us to the end of this podcast. can't believe it. There are so many different things we could have talked about and um, I, I know that you've got a lot of papers on this and you gave me a lot of other papers. I'll put those on the notes mm -hmm. for people to read. Um, like I said at the beginning, my intention for this podcast is, is not for us to get into cancer specifically, but it's for us to have an awareness of this stuff. And there is a role for exercise and nutrition. And it's been really interesting to discuss the research and, and the work that you've been doing in. And I'm, you know, appreciate the time that you've spent on this. Oh, um, thank you, Lauren. Yeah, thank no, it's, it's been awesome. Um, I guess it's not the sort of thing that you, we usually have sort of a summing up sort of area but is there anything that springs to mind that you wanted to end the podcast on for the listeners um i suppose in terms of the kind of what well, i suppose some of the the how to summarize and some of the key points that people can take away or some of the recommendations let's say mm. that you know for postmenopausal women especially the achievement and maintenance of a healthy weight important um so if somebody is postmenopausal, overweight or obese, they're an increased risk of breast cancer or if they have been diagnosed with breast cancer, it's really important to try to lose that weight and, you know, try to seek, um, you know, within the hospital dietitians uh, help with that, with that weight loss and so on. Um, in terms of the physical activity that some people do, now, it, at the moment, we just, the, the literature needs to get a little bit better in terms of the right dose that we give um, cancer patients with anything but the recommended physical activity guidelines you know are a good place to start so that 150 minutes a week of, of moderate or 75 minutes a week of vigorous and you know the two days a week of strength training exercises in there you know that's a good place to start um, and to get people active in terms of um, how you can apply those think about kind of 
in your everyday life in terms of increasing um, the kind of amount you walk to work, for example, where you park the car, you know, just to kind of increase the household activities that you do, just general physical activity doesn't necessarily have to be in the gym. And then to get family members involved as well, to go for a walk with your partner or friends and family and so on. So those are some of the kind of ways that you can be more active. In terms of like where I'm at at the moment is, is I'm working on a Cochrane systematic review, looking at all the studies that have like the post-treatment exercise interventions, of which there are far too many. <laughs> there are, you know, about 65 trials with about 150 papers that I'm trying to work into a meta-analysis at the moment. So, but that should be coming out, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, summertime is that kind of time that I'm looking at that. So, yeah. And there'll be much more recommendations from that. Yeah, no, awesome. I can't wait till that comes out. Maybe that's another podcast. Um, so listen, uh, Ian, thank you again for your time. It's been great. Uh, for those that want to um, learn more about your work, etc., cetera, um, I will put ResearchGate um, a few other links on the podcast page. But um, uh, your Twitter handle would be what? It's at IML... Well, it doesn't work. I am Lahart. Cool. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll, that'll be yeah. that'll, when I tweet I this. That'll, Lahart, that'll yeah. be in the title, and of course, you're at the University of Wolverhampton, yeah, where you're easily found on the website there. Um, great. So that brings us to the end of this uh, podcast. I haven't quite decided what I'll title it, but I'll um, <laughs> obviously, yeah. <laughs> uh, but. Um, uh, I, of course, am uh, Laurent Bannock. You can learn more about these podcasts at guruperformance.com as well as our educational programs, uh, the ISSM Diploma, um, and um, come and learn sports and exercise nutrition on the MSc program I run at Middlesex University. Um, anyway, I will talk to you all very soon.